0: Hi, my friends. We really need your support to keep bringing these wonderful voices to you. If you find joy and solace in the podcast that we create, please consider clicking the button on the right side of the site. You know, that little button that says donate. Thank you for your kindness. my friends who are listening to future primitive the thing is i can't stop grinning like that right now because i'm uh, i'm feeling quite happy and amused so and the reason is that uh, i'm with hamilton morris who is an american journalist and a pharmacological researcher. He is known for his television series, Hamilton's Pharmacopeia, in which he investigates the chemistry, history, and cultural impact of various psychoactive drugs. Hamilton Morris was born in New York City, the son of Julia Sheehan and documentary filmmaker Errol Morris. Also in this conversation is his esteemed father, Errol Morris, and Errol Morris Films have won many awards, including an Oscar for The Fog of War, the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival for a Brief History of Time, the Silver Bear at the Berlin International Festival Festival. Film Festival for Standard Operating Procedure. And uh, Roger Ebert uh, says that he is, if not the best, one of the best documentarians and filmmakers in the world. Morris is also the author of two New York Times bestsellers, Believing in Seeing and A Wilderness of Error. He has directed over a thousand television commercials and I have in my hand his latest book called The Ashtray or The Man Who Denialed Reality. Well, hello there, you two. Hi. Hello. How are you doing in isolation together uh, in Cambridge? Uh, Are you tolerating each other?
1: Well, I blame him for the coronavirus. (laughs) Um, No, we're getting along just fine. Actually, I'm quite surprised that uh, Julie, my wife, his mother, Hamilton and myself, are actually not killing each other after weeks of isolation. It's quite astounding. And um, I still like both of them. In fact, I still might love both of them. It's really amazing. What can I say? If I was told in advance, you'll be locked in a house for who knows how long. How long is this going to go on for? We don't know. Could be another I don't know, thousand years. Maybe it's a kind of experiment we don't really know clearly about.
2: Mm -hmm. I'm enjoying it. Other than the, the threat of the death of people that I love, it's been very nice. It's been relaxing. I was in the middle of working continuously and it's sort of like a a vacation and it's a nice opportunity to film. I've set up a small studio in the women's bathroom of my dad's office and (laughs) I'm filming plants growing and editing. It's been nice.
0: So I'm wondering Hamilton, uh, What plant are you the most in love with at this time?
2: Uh, Well, I've been, uh, I suppose, iboga. I'm most interested in iboga because um, I've been editing all this footage that I captured in West Africa and Cameroon and Gabon. And I think that it's a very interesting plant from almost any perspective that you look at it, the chemistry is fascinating, the culture, the religion surrounding it is, is totally interesting. Um, you know, the medicinal therapeutic applications of it are fascinating. And I mean, even the music that's composed for these ceremonies is really incredible. So it's, it's been a really exciting to look at all that footage and kind of see all the complexity and trying to make something out of that.
0: Have you? I
1: have a couple of questions Errol, for this guy. Please. Uh, hold on. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, so when did you first hear about a um Well, I,
2: I had known about it for a very long time, but the way that, you know, probably since I was, you know, for as long as I've been interested in psychedelics, because it is it is simultaneously a well-known plant and a plant that most people
3: haven't actually tried and don't have a lot of deep knowledge about. So when people talk about
2: iboga okay, in the United States, it's almost exclusively in the context of treatment of addiction. And so people think of it as the psychedelic that gets people off heroin or even just the plant that gets people off heroin. They don't appreciate it for any reason other than that. And it's sort of considered uh, extreme and dangerous and different from all other psychedelics that people might use in a more uh, casual manner. So I'd known about it for a long time, but due to the you know difficulty of studying it, it doesn't grow anywhere outside of a small region in West Africa. It's illegal in the United States. It's... Um, is not really researched very frequently it's difficult to obtain it's expensive it's relatively toxic compared to something like lsd um it's uh yeah it's just not something that most people have the opportunity to get a get close to
1: have you ever taken a boga
0: yes actually i find it uh, extremely useful May I speak about you? Yeah. Uh, José Luis, when we met uh, 14 years ago, he, uh, I would never see him. I liked him a lot, but I never saw him because he, he, was, also out, uh, he was always outside the door smoking a cigarette. So, and also he had asthma. So, um, so we went down to Mexico... And, uh, he was given, he was given I- Iboga, and, uh, I was given a low dose as well. And, uh, um, our Jose here has never smoked a cigarette again. Never even thinks about smoking. It was quite an epic night. Uh, if, well, you could speak about it yourself.
3: Yeah, I I felt like I was uh, a kind of uh, rewired somehow. Like uh, it was like a very intense therapy session of years condensed in a few hours, and I was being shown again and again my self hatred until I reached a point when I was bored to death of that part of myself, and it was kind of a radical psychological perch and uh, I, it was just one session one night and then a follow up 3 days later that's that's all and since then i i feel a different person no cravings no all the contrary i feel repulsion when i smell some cigarette in the air no so it it, it is an amazing plant really an amazing and it felt very earthy it felt very it wasn't any uh, ra- uh, fireworks, any visuals, for me at least, and it was felt very like coming to the root of my being, very getting real. So that's my experience.
1: I should drag Josh in here, who's a chain smoker and can't give it up.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. I highly recommend yeah. it. Um that night I took it as well and it was really, really sweet because I'd hear Jose, wretch. Uh, is that the word, a wretch? And, uh, and the, the guy who was uh, our guide. Because, because you, have,
1: you have an action
0: that goes with it. Oh, oh well, the thing wretch. is, in my wretch. case, if I moved my eyelashes, I would have that, that reaction. And I think I read somewhere that, uh, Hamilton, that when the Buiti discovered it, they discovered it from a hedgehog. Somebody ate a hedgehog, and they got the effects in the tribe, and they got the effects of the Iboga, and... uh, and so they traced it down because they thought it was really curious, uh, and they were smart enough that they tra- they traced it to the hedgehog they'd eaten, and then they traced the well, it's a porcupine. They traced the porcupine back to the the root, and that's how they found out that that was a uh, magical root, and then the. And then the, the the hunters took it because it paralyzed them. It made them so still. Like, that's a story I know. It made them so still. So talking about not even being able to move my eyelashes without throwing up made them so still that they could really be present to wait for the prey. Did you know that story, Hamilton?
2: <laughs> I I've many different variations of these Iboga origin stories. I've never heard one with a,
3: with a porcupine. I've heard uh, one with a civet. I've heard
2: one with a, um, maybe it was uh, some kind of fish. There's some suggestion that gorillas eat it. There's a suggestion that elephants eat the fruit. I, I, I think that it's probably the case for most of these psychoactive plants that people discover them after watching animals become intoxicated after eating some part of the plant. And um, I was sort of hoping that I might observe something like that in West Africa. But it seemed to be the case that uh, not only did I not observe any animals other than uh, these giant African snails eating the plant, most animals seemed sort of repulsed by it. I tried to feed uh, the fruit to a cow, and the cow just was totally, totally repelled by this fruit didn't even want to look at it. So, that's okay. a cow. I guess cows don't eat fruit naturally. You know, so.
0: Yeah, maybe. Well, I had this one these thing... Stories,
1: these stories go back to the 19... How far back do these stories go? To the 19th century?
0: I forgot how so. far back they go. Because... You
2: have the contemporary origin stories, you have the major anthropologist was this guy Fernandez at UChicago who wrote this mm-hmm. huge book about Buiti in the I believe early 70s and that's kind of the primary source of this stuff but there's, and most of the, the literature before that is not written in English it's mostly been studied in French and so I haven't actually been able to read some of the older literature on it I mean it was even most of the culture was French it was even a, a French pharmaceutical. Right. Yeah. I'll
0: translate for you. I'd be happy oh, okay. to translate for you. That would be great. Yeah, I think that there's probably there's a lot
2: of French history that um, that is just not accessible. But and they they also say that it came from pygmy pygmy people. Pigmy, and I was hoping yeah, they were there pygmy. to find some pygmy people, but it was really it was very difficult being in in West Africa for the crew because it was so hot. Uh, My cameraman fainted on one day. Everyone got very sick other than me. Um, And so the hike to get to the region where the pygmy people lived was arduous enough
1: that everyone didn't want to do it, and I felt bad uh, sort of forcing people to do it. Mm. It's a really interesting story. Yeah. Yeah. Am I... Breaking some kind of rule here by questioning my son. You sure?
0: I'm delighted.
1: Uh, I don't want to be a bad subject. Uh, I'm,
0: I'm uh, your director is delighted. <laughs> okay. well, I, have,
2: I have a question. Yes, because you know, I've uh, I think it's interesting how the way we think about psychedelics has evolved over time. And how, you know, maybe in the early 2000s, there was an enormous emphasis in terms of pop culture on shamanism. And, you know, Daniel Pinchbeck wrote these books and everyone became very interested in ayahuasca and everyone felt that they should, uh, you know, follow the rituals of indigenous groups that use psychedelics. And then that gradually gave way to a, a more medically oriented model where people instead focused on treatment of, psychiatric disorders like ptsd and addiction and all of the cultural emphasis was placed on the work that was being done at johns hopkins and nyu and and really like when people talk about psychedelics now it's very often medicalized but in the 1960s and 70s it seemed like there was a a period where people were more comfortable with their own use and didn't feel the need to um to view it through an exclusively medical framework or through an exclusively you know, indigenous shamanic framework. And what I'm wondering is was Leary at all interested in, in those in following the lead of other groups, like, you know, I guess with LSD, because it was a synthetic compound, um, there was no one really to look to in terms of a, a tradition, but did he care about the, the, the rituals of indigenous groups or any of that?
0: Well, you know, he became very uh, interested in uh, in Hinduism and Buddhism. That's, that's what opened up for him from his experiences with psilocybin to begin with. And the first experience were in Mexico, in neo So I'm pretty sure that, um, like it was for you, it were to find the most... He found the most authentic um, people to guide him. I wasn't with him at the time of neo in the beginning, but then it, he... Uh, within a few years, like many other people, he went to India and his indigenous experiences were more, uh, based on a philosophical research of, um, of Indian and Buddhist spirituality.
2: Right. Right. I was, uh, reading Start Your Own Religion recently and, um, I think, I think it's interesting because people have almost entirely abandoned this religious model of psychedelic use as a way of introducing them to, to society. Um, you know, there, was, there was an idea, at least then in the 60s, that, um, that it would not only be a good model for introducing them to the public, but that it would also provide some sort of legal defense and that if you had a, a valid religious purpose for your use of psychedelics, it would be protected under the first amendment. Um, and I think it's interesting because yeah, people just don't even really, I mean, of course some people do now, but now it's, it's almost exclusively medicalized. And that seems to be the only um, viable path forward that anyone takes seriously. Was he, did he, do you think that he was genuinely interested in the, the medical or rather in the religious aspect, or you just saw it as the the most expedient route after the failure of the medical model with the discontinuation of LSD by Sandoz and all that.
0: I I think you you go deep here because uh, that's where we enter the poignancy of... um, after he testified to Congress and he was... Deeply hoping that the study of uh, of psychedelics was going to be given to the medical profession, and the fact that uh, it became a gigantic business for the uh, enforcement the enforcement societies uh, put him in a certain level of despair. And, uh, and sadness, and um, I mean, I'm thinking about it as you, as you ask. And uh, many times when we reached, because he knew that hundreds of thousands, millions of people were going to experiment with it. And he also knew, because he was a psychologist himself, and he was very serious in his study, he knew that a lot of people were going to freak out because he, he knew what a bad childhood does to you, etc. So he knew that it was if it was given to uh, the, the enforcement forces, it was going to kill, kill people and put people in, uh, in a very bad place. So he entered a sort of despair that often can only be alleviated by a spiritual quest I mean later he became a total atheist I remember I remember him driving me to uh, to LAX once and I asked him do you believe in God and uh, it was before way before the film and he said to me you mean Bruce and maybe that's why they got the name Bruce because he was incredibly mocking of that concept. And I'm thinking now that it probably came from his, his, his knowing deeply that, um, you know, people were going to be hurt before it got better.
2: Right. But I think that was kind of a central you know, question in his own legal defense, you know, after the, the cannabis arrest as well, whether or not his religious defense that it was part of his Hindu practice in, in Hinduism was that, you know, it's it's so complicated because on one hand, uh, of course, no one should even be in this position of having to justify any of this. People should be able to do whatever they want as long as they're not hurting anyone else. So you shouldn't have to justify it religiously or medically or in any way whatsoever. but he needed one. And so then it creates this question of what is valid and and what is a sort of cynical defense. And with psychedelics, I think it's especially tricky to figure out which is honest and which is the most, you know, was when he wrote start your own religion, was that because he recognized, was it because he, he saw this as a first amendment defense of psychedelic drug use, or did he really, you know, think that this was, um, was no, the I think
0: he really believed it. I think he yeah. really believed it for a while. And, yeah. then, and then he became cynical about it. It's interesting because there you could make a juxtaposition to when we were brought back and uh, they, t- they tried him for escaping. And uh, with his lawyer, he chose the insanity defense. And that trial, by the way, Errol, the whole transcript of that trial is incredible. But where, where,
1: where is the transcript of that trial? Uh,
0: the court in San Luis Obispo, I, I would imagine they still have the the court transcripts. So, so yeah, uh, where was I? Wanted to say, Hamilton, that uh, I was very surprised by that insanity defense, and. Uh, um, because the defense was v- very, very clear. It was. I mean, it's crazy that uh, he one night uh, he he was uh, in the yard or something, and uh, he had a flashback, and he and he he had a, a total blank, and then. He, he did this thing, and he didn't even remember that he did it. And I was I was disgusted by that defense. Why would you use that for somebody who, in my view, was absolutely sane, and he, he was yeah. going to get time added to his sentence anyway? So that's that's a thing to look into, but. So the League of Spiritual Discovery, I think that was honest, and I think it was true at the time. But as you know, Hamilton, things move really, really, really fast when you're working with these, what we call now medicines. I mean, belief systems come and go really quickly.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Did he interact with many of these religious groups that were forming in the 1960s because I've been um, I, where I was last year spending a lot of time with members of a cult that I think kind of started what they did on the basis of start your own religion and I imagine there were all sorts of people that wanted to, to pull them into uh, pull them into their religious movements was that something that he Who talked was about this? Was,
0: was was that the, the what's left of the brotherhood
2: uh, it was a, a group in New York City called the Temple of the True Inner Light.
0: Oh, I don't and, know about them.
2: Yeah. A very kind of small, weird group. Yeah.
0: Well, I can't answer much of your questions about the 60s because um, I wasn't there.
2: Right.
0: Uh, I, was, I was young, very young at that time, and I wasn't there, so... Right.
2: and. Uh, my dad was showing me a piece of the interview where you were talking about this uh this very complicated uh ergotamine tartrate uh, sort of uh, I, I I was a little bit confused by exactly what was being described. Could you could you tell me that story just so I can uh attempt to better understand?
0: Yeah, I thought about it because last night we were, well we binged on uh, the second season of Pharmacopeia the last two nights and uh by the way i uh, i really loved it and i um i loved the uh, i loved the tenderness um and uh and the uh, mischievousness uh in the uh in the In the stories, so I want to thank you, because tenderness and mischievousness are two of my best favorite things, and you got, you've, you've got it now, you've got it, yeah so um so yes I, and so you were talking about er with uh, remind me of his name the the man who made the LSD in the volcano?
2: Oh, uh, Daryl Lemaire. Lemaire, yes.
0: Yeah, and somehow you got on the subject of ergotamine as the the basic uh, ingredient that you need. So, is this the Franklin story? That's the Franklin story. In the interview with
1: Joanna. Oh, yes, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So, so yeah. So you know, I was uh, I was having this uh, I was having this beautiful um, I don't know what you call it when it's a in French we call it amitié amoureuse. So it's a it's an in love friendship. It's like where you you're not having sex and you're not doing the you're not doing the the normal in love thing, but it's a little more than a friendship. It's a friendship in love. So I was having this friendship in love with this man uh, who now uh, is a, a very well-known uh, Buddhist teacher. And uh, he was making clear light. He was making lots of clear light his name, I mean, it's very well known now because he wrote a book and also he was arrested and everything. His name is Dennis Kelly and um, he uh, he was making this beautiful clear light. So, um, yeah, I mean, the whole story I told Errol and you can see it and you can read it, but at some point Franklin said to me, I need some ergotamine tartrate to make a batch of clear light. That was the best acid I ever tried, but anyway. And uh, I said to him, and uh, you have to understand, I was um, (laughs) whimsically, uh, well, I told Errol, and people don't like it when I say this, but a mix of Alice in Wonderland and Forrest Gump, in that, in in that milieu. <laughs> and I said to him, "Ergotamine, oh, perfect! I, I have a, um, I have a source, and uh, he's in Switzerland, and it'll cost you ten thousand dollars a pound or a kilo. I can't remember." And how many kilos do you want? And how quickly <laughs> And he said, "I'd like uh, six kilos, or six pounds, I don't remember." And I said, "No, nah, not a problem." And, um, and so on goes the story. so what was what was the question?
2: Well, I just found the, the actual mechanism of this this sort of it was a scam. It was like a little uh, a, a trick.
0: Uh, yeah, it was a little trick. Thank you. I prefer. <laughs> it, it I was de- I was desperate to to get money for the Timothy Leary Defense Fund. You know, to pay his lawyers, and uh, I just uh, had to do something. So call it, it call it what you like, but. So actually, I mean, it's quite a a, a long story and I I would pray your, I would kindly pray your father to play you that that story. (laughs) Because he made me tell, you made me tell the whole whole story step by step, didn't you? I did. Yeah. So, and I'm sure it will amuse you because it's quite, uh, it's quite a little trick, as you said. So he gave me $60,000, uh, $10,000 a pound, and uh, I gave him a Halliburton suitcase with... Um, I love that Halliburton suitcase. It was really beautiful. And anyway, um, and uh, in it uh, was a painting done by Herman Hess. That Hermann Hess's son had given Timothy when he was in prison in Switzerland. And it was a beautiful, it was a little paysage, and he told Timothy that he could escape through that little painting by Hess. It was uh, really sweet. And uh, I gave him this, um, this beautiful tantric ring that Timothy gave me the first time we made love. And I wrote him a letter telling him that if he could get busted by me, he sure had to stop uh, being a chemist because he he would get busted by the DEA, although I thought they were not as smart as I was. And, uh, you know, various treasures in that beautiful little Halliburton uh, suitcase. And I took the $60,000, and I went straight to Timothy's lawyers, and I said, "Now free him." And they said, "It's not a question of money."
1: Why did you give Franklin all of these things?
0: Because I loved him. I didn't. Because, as as your beloved son just said, it wasn't a scam. It was a trick. It was a magic trick, and so. I want him, him to know because the next day he he actually called me up at the Starseed Information Center that I worked out of and he left me a message saying, will you meet with me tomorrow? and And I said, sure. And the next day I met with him and he said, why did you do that to me? And I said, "Well, you have to admit that if I had asked you for 60,000 dollars cash, you wouldn't have given it to me, which is true of most people, uh, even some asset dealers.. You know? <laughs> uh, and he agreed, and, uh, and he said, "Fly like the wind." And he wasn't angry. He wasn't angry. He wasn't angry. I mean, he was a bit angry in the beginning, I have to say, but uh...
1: a bit angry in the beginning
0: <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I'm not supposed to tell you, telling my life stories. I am supposed to be interviewing you about your your magnificent crafts, both of you. So, Errol, what are you... It's a he asked you about it. <laughs> um, Errol, what are you working on at this time?
1: Well, it may come as a big surprise. I'm working on you.
0: <laughs> that's what I'm
1: working on.
0: I think that's yeah. a really good idea.
1: I'm uh, rather enjoying it, to tell you the truth. <laughs> Your story, the whole story is just quite fabulous. And hopefully they will continue to, to be supporting it. You know, I just, I, I don't know really, I had a conversation with someone just yesterday that all of these big companies like uh, Showtime, which I believe is owned by CBS, CBS's main income comes from sports. Yeah. no sports no income no money and um, yeah I think it's interesting It's, it's interesting to see the whole world sort of grinding to a stop I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing I suppose if I'm ruined and I end up you know 10 years from now selling grapefruit on the side of the highway that will not be so good Hopefully, Hamilton will become so successful he can support me.
0: Oh, and maybe he can. Uh, I can. I can trick him, and he'd be so successful he could put up the money for the film you're going to make about me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll work something out. What do What do you think of this time, Hamilton?
2: Uh. Well, it's funny because before all this, I was trying to get ergotamine tartrate because I wanted to film the synthesis of not LSD but a uncontrolled derivatives because as far as I know, nobody has ever filmed LSD being produced or a similar compound being produced. Um, and to this day, I mean, it's very difficult to get ergotamine tartrate. It's not surprising that that was an effective scam even if you have a license to get it even if you are an academic researcher trying to get it for a government sanctioned experiment it's, it's very very difficult to get this stuff and i've always found that world uh immensely interesting so i mean do, you, do would you do you have anything to say about dennis kelly or the clear light people do you have any um
0: well he's in intra- uh yeah you could you could talk to him i mean he's um He's very revered as a Buddhist teacher. The man I know who was making most of the acid until he got arrested in uh, 2000 well, he's in prison in Tucson. Uh, his name is. Um, What's his first name? Picard? Leonard Picard. Oh, yeah. Picard. Yeah. yeah. Do you know him? You've been to see him?
2: I've never met him. I've just been pen pals with him for fourteen years.
0: Oh yeah, I'm pen pals with him too. I, I'm I'm thinking maybe he'll get out because he's he's old and he's nonviolent and um, with this corona thing, he could get out. That
2: would be nice. That would be fantastic for him. I mean, I've been I, I, he wrote me an email maybe two days ago, so I hope. He didn't mention getting out, but I hope they do something like that. It would certainly be an unusually just and compassionate thing.
1: How long is this sentence?
0: Uh, two lifetimes. Two lifetimes?
1: huh. That's not good.
0: No. It's 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 terrible. I mean, I think it's terrible this, this This would be a really interesting person to interview, don't you think I've
1: that? tried the
2: problem the problem with Picard is that uh because he hopes to be released, he maintains his innocence, and so he really it's actually i think been bad for him ultimately because if he acknowledged what he did, I think a lot more people would there'd be more of a movement to bring his story to public attention, but because he insists that he is innocent when everybody knows that he's guilty, even though of course what he's guilty of is not actually, or should not be a crime? It's not a bad thing. It should be, maybe he should be congratulated for what he did, but um, because he insists that he wasn't involved, there aren't as many people that are interested in his story. And so um, I think it's been a little bit harder for him to get support Whereas someone like, you know, other chemists like Nick Sand or Casey Hardison that have been had a more activist approach, had an enormous amount of support from the psychedelic community and from drug policy people because um, they could campaign to say this was unjust. Their sentence needs to be reduced, but it's it's a bit it's a bit tricky for him. I don't know what he's going to do
0: have you Have you told him that, or in good language, have you shared that with him
2: i I have told him countless times, and uh and it's it's he can't even respond to statements like that because mm-hmm. anything that uh in any way might indicate that he was involved, he feels will ruin his chance of ever being released, so he's just sticking to this line that he is innocent. And was, and that's the way he's, he's playing it
0: Ooh, here's a twisted question for Errol
1: one thing is I, I don't really believe in redemption right and the idea that people have to go through some kind of performance art to show that they have been redeemed of something that it makes no sense to me um, why you have to claim your innocence whereas people really want they just beg for it they want someone to say oh I feel so deeply ashamed of myself I did this I knew it was wrong I'd like to express remorse I'm so deeply sorry fuck all of that I mean the fact that we really need that is so strange in and of itself I don't know Fuck redemption.
0: That's a that's a very very interesting subject. I mean, because there is no such thing as redemption. I mean, what it it was, me, if you do something bad, you've done something
1: bad. There ain't nothing nothing anybody can do about it.
0: Look, I used to lie. Uh, Sixty-seven times a day. Now I lie. twice three... so infrequently. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I wonder. I wonder how many people like. Uh, was it? Did Ted Bundy acknowledge his crimes in prison? I forgot. Did he? Did mm-hmm. he say? Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is is the impulse you, you, you're you interested in, people. Oh, I had this very learned question here about criminals. Learned question? Yeah, right. Cri- criminals and what you thought of criminals, but I, I, I can't find it anymore. Um, but... Um, it, it maybe someone stole it. Maybe someone took it from right there. Um Oh yeah, I like, the, I like where it says that um, you're interested by authorities and eccentrics. Now, how's the, how do these two things mix together? I mean, where is, the, where is the paradox that adores itself here? It's
1: hard to know what you're interested in or not. We never know. I know that when you sent me your book, um, I was interested, but when I read it, and I decided that there was a story independent of Timothy Leary, there was a story about Joanna Harkert Smith, then I became really interested in it. God knows people will write about Timothy Leary forever, um, or for a very, very long time, if not forever. Uh, But your story has a strange quality to it. Uh, Timothy Leary is clearly part of it, but then again, you're also clearly part of it. And I like that. So I could say, why am I interested in you? Probably for a lot of reasons mainly because I don't understand you completely. I think that's part of it. There's a mystery. Um, and part of what I also like about it, forgive me if I'm just babbling here.
0: I love it. Is you seem <laughs> to Bapping be... Babbling about me. <laughs> ah. Well,
1: like most, most people that interest me, you seem to be a mystery to yourself. And that is Interesting.
0: Uh-huh.
1: As, as if you have been involved in a struggle to figure out who you are. Am I a good person? Am I a bad person? Um, am I a believable person? Am I an ingenuous person? Am I an honest person? Am I a good person? I think all of these things are questions that, I don't know, they obsess the people that interest me, and they also obsess me myself. What can I say? So I feel lucky. I get to I get to talk to interesting people.
0: I feel a lot of affection for you too, Errol. Oh. I've I've retrieved the word affection about you. I really I was looking after I left uh, after I left Cambridge. I was looking for the word the the word that would be that would be just exact because I love language, and. And the word affection came up, and that's that's well, that's, nice. that's my you. word, and I'm sticking to it. Come I'm on. not I'm not sticking to my own story, but I'm sticking to that word. <laughs> um, it's,
1: this is a very odd sort of process because I feel like interviewing you. I can't sort of shed this desire to interview. I feel like interviewing Hamilton.
0: I feel like interviewing <laughs> Hamilton. <laughs> Uh, the, I'm sorry to. I have the to. Whole int- the Boda thing. Uh, let me just Who interrupt
1: you. me that you were saying. Which I, I. Can I?
0: Yeah, yeah, but let's fight for this peace. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um. Hamilton and I took. Am I allowed to talk about ayahuasca? Sure. So we took ayahuasca together. Oh. And uh, the kind of father son thing and I was uh, I was playing the cello I played the cello I was playing the cello on ayahuasca and the thing that, that seemed really different which means that I should probably use psychedelics far far more often as a person who sort of lived his entire life with a extreme level of self-hatred, self-loathing. You were talking about self-hatred. That somehow these drugs, I don't know how best to describe it. It doesn't go away, but it's curved, it's limited, it's moved back Mm -hmm. so that it isn't in the center of everything. And I also realized it was about fear, um, fear of being mediocre, fear of being um, worse than mediocre, fear of being bad, and um, that if one could get rid of these feelings, there was almost sort of like limitless possibilities available to you. I thought that was amazing and an important. An important insight. Maybe, uh, maybe all of these things are about that in some way. I think that psychotherapy, in some way, um, I'd written a book, and in the dedication page, I mentioned my current psychiatrist and said that she had proved to me that a, a, a 10% reduction in self loathing could lead to a 30% increase in productivity. And, um, I think it's true. But, um, how these drugs exactly work. I don't know. I don't have the kind of experience that my son has, which is obviously far, far, far more extensive. And mine would be more extensive except for cowardice, fear. Uh, actually the belief that I am damaged and I shouldn't do anything to enhance that damage.
0: What is worse to fear than self-hatred itself?
1: It's a strange thing. I wonder at what point God gave us self-hatred.
0: No, God didn't give us self-hatred. Other humans did. <laughs> no, sweetheart. No, no. <laughs> And, uh, and thank you, thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, Your tenderness is exquisite, Errol Morris. And you said that I don't know myself. Well, I'll tell you, I come from abject self-hatred. And most of the time, and that's a lot, like ninety eight percent of the time I don't have that anymore. And it doesn't make me very active in big things, but it certainly makes me very deep in little things. Mm. So thank you, Hamilton, for giving your your dad ayahuasca. Good job. Yeah. Good
1: job. Hello.
2: I mean, I, I felt that
1: he terrorized the dog.
2: <laughs>
1: he was loving the dog so much. Uh, I know that the dog freaked out. The dog started growling because of the excess of
0: love. Oh <laughs> yeah, <that is> <laughs> 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 no! Did the dog recover? I think the dog is is okay now. Yes. Hamilton, you're the one who, when you were, or you shared with us, when you were down on the ground with the frog, you were just going, love, 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 love.
2: It's true. Yeah, that was sort of unexpected. But, yeah, they do have this tendency to precipitate better parts of yourself which is why I think it's unfortunate that so many people are afraid of being damaged by them or hurt by them or reduced by them in some way when it seems at least in my experience that it's entirely the opposite
0: well that takes us to the good old professor TL to set and setting I, I can't imagine that one could go wrong in a, in a very loving uh, and beautiful set and setting. So I think that's the mistake that uh, that happened uh, in the '60s. Is people had no idea. I mean, I was lucky because uh, although I I was very abused and neglected, I grew up in a lot of beauty in my environment. Paris and the people i was I came into the they they did have a sense of beauty, so I had the beauty and then somehow as 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 people who had taken these these substances, we attracted each other in a lot of us in a loving way um, i mean after an acid trip with somebody, it would be really hard for me not to feel loving feelings towards them because it's sort of like going across the, the Gobi Desert together a lot of the time, isn't it? What was your first acid trip? Oh, it, it was actually the reason I came to the States. I had read about it, and I had, uh, I had listened to the music from Woodstock all that summer. And so I decided that uh, I, I read about LSD, and I came to the States, to Washington, D.C., and uh, I found it wasn't acid, it was mescaline. I, f- I found mescaline within three weeks of being there. And um, I had no idea how much to take. Somebody gave us an envelope with blue, with a blue powder in it. And Hamilton, you might, uh, you might know that, that blue is often the color of these substances. I call taking mushrooms bluing have you? Are you familiar with bluing?
2: I've never heard the term. I'm familiar with the blue pigment that is produced when the mushrooms are, are bruised, which they, uh, I had spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the structure of that was, as had many other people. And it wasn't until, I think, last year that they finally figured out what that blue pigment is. But yeah, it's, um, it is interesting. What is the blue pigment? It's a, a, uh, Oxidation product of silicin that has a kind of a structure that's been very difficult to elucidate, where the two two molecules are connected in a sort of dimer. Um, show it to you if you're curious.
0: And have you have you had the experience that actually in the experience of when you are getting to uh, you're getting high, uh, you you start to see in in the, uh, in the plasma you start to see chocquas and, uh, and periwinkle colors and, and dark blue, the color of night. Everything seems to be bluing.
2: Huh. I mean, I, I am sure I have. There's so much, you know, so much interesting visual activity that happens in an experience like that, that yes, I'm sure I've had something with blue, but I don't know that I remember it specifically. But I have always been very interested in the different sort of pigmented materials that um, some of these psychedelics contain,
0: like the red in the amanita. The only That's another, red, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: but it's not the only red in the forest. You said the only red in the forest, and then the Cracom uh, uh, leaf when you went far, 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 far in, you discovered the tree, and the tree had red leaves, not just in the middle, right?
2: It's true, yeah. yeah. Yes, it's true.
0: Is it worth taking crackum for pain?
2: Um, you know, it, it is an opioid, and so it carries all of the associated risks of becoming dependent on it. Um, obviously, it's less of an issue with Groton than it is with um, more potent opioids. So I would say it's worth a shot, but you know, people should regard it with some caution. Um, I think there's a sort of misconception that because it's not a controlled substance that it must be legal or non-addictive or something like that, and that's obviously not the case. So it's, uh, it's certainly worth trying.
0: It's Kratom, Kratom, not Kracomm Yes. <laughs> yeah well, uh Hamilton, would you be willing to share an uh, an important experience with uh I was thinking you might not call it an entheogen an entheogen because you called yourself a um an atheist, so you wouldn't yeah. call them entheogens. You would call them psychedelics or...
2: I use the term psychedelic, yes. But I I think that the term entheogen is also useful. Um, I guess, I I mean, somewhat recently, you know, just at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, I was in the middle of filming the third season of my show and, and then had to cancel the shoots that I had planned and had to... Um stop everything that I was doing in a way that was very depressing and uncomfortable and um, and I think that a lot of people have a, a feeling that they should never use a psychedelic if they're in a bad mood or if they're unhappy or if the circumstances of their um, of their life are not in order, but of course it's very rarely the case that things are truly in order and there's usually something wrong and so with that attitude you can, usually find a reason to never use a psychedelic. And, um, and I've found is a good advice, but I've found that it's often the times where I am the least happy and the most trouble that I can extract the most benefit from a psychedelic experience. So I smoked DMT, um, shortly before everyone was, uh, really maybe at the beginning of all these quarantine periods. And, um, and it first had a sort of, um, disturbing vision of tessellated pangolins and horseshoe bats but then um, that was a vision yeah I see <laughs> yes and uh, and and then um, suddenly felt very okay with feeling miserable. Where I thought, oh, well, of course I'm miserable about all of this, and of course I'm disturbed, and of course this is sad, and of course um, I, I should feel anxious about this. It's completely rational. There's nothing wrong with it, and it made me feel better about feeling bad. Suddenly, I, which is, is sort of something that I think a lot of therapy does, where it's it's not about necessarily fixing a problem, but Becoming comfortable with your own response to a problem and recognizing that it's likely a valid response given the circumstances. So that that was a recent experience I think was beneficial, and I felt much better, and have felt much better since that you know single time of smoking DMT, maybe uh, around the beginning of the month.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm ready for
0: more. I just wanted to tell you, I mean, this might not be part of the interview, but uh, the interview, we don't have an interview here. We we have friends chatting, and it's lovely. Um, I was looking at your website, and I looked at the Jimmy Hoffa piece, uh, Errol, and... uh, What Jimmy Hoffa piece? Didn't you? Don't you? Didn't you write a, G, a piece about uh, Jimmy Hoffa? Yes, I did. Yeah,
1: you did. I, yeah. I actually also filmed a piece. I went to to Boca Raton and interviewed Chucky O'Brien, who um, died. By the way, you should not make any inferences from this. Just simply because I interview someone doesn't mean that their demise is imminent. No way. <laughs> You'll be fine. But uh, he died within two weeks of he my did. interview. Wow. And he was the man accused of having driven Jimmy Hoffa, falsely accused of having his... driven Jimmy Hoffa to his death.
0: So uh, because I was thinking uh, when, um, I don't know why, when Hamilton was speaking, I was thinking, uh, I'm a woman who, in the psychedelic milieu, has a very, very, very bad reputation. And uh, it's gone on for years. And it made me think about uh, the man you were talking about, I forgot his name now, who just died. And he was saying that his stepfather had this, this horrible reputation all his life. Um, so the, the
1: stepfather is the man I interviewed
0: who died Right. So the stepfather this poor man he had this terrible repu- well, bravo his terrible reputation all his life and he couldn't he couldn't kick it and but I was thinking something that I I told you when we were filming that you were really busy. Well, beautifully busy. Um you know, when Timothy was taken to the uh, Metropolitan Correctional Center in San Diego to this special floor for high-powered snitches, he made friends with a lot of high-powered snitches. One was, uh, one was the one that was talking about uh, who killed the FBI agent at Wounded Knee. And that Indian man made me some beautiful beaded things that I still have. And one of them was... No, it wasn't Leonard Peltier. It was some other person, uh, some mm-hmm. other guy. I, I don't remember who it, who it, what his name was. But this other guy, Timothy became very good friends with, was a teamster. And apparently he was speaking about Jimmy Hoffa's death and uh, I actually found his name in your article and I'm totally blown away and his name was Ed Parton. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. Yes, indeed. Ed Parton was on the same floor with Timothy and Ed Parton Good boy. Here, here, this, here, this. And Ed Parton after Timothy had been in prison for three and a half years and we had moved more heavens and more earths that you can dream of, Ed Parton said, I can get you out. And uh, then Timothy said to me, you have to go and see Ed Parton's lawyer uh, called Jim McPherson in Baton Rouge. And Jim McPherson. So then, so at that time, uh, Timothy, uh, you know, Timothy had been had to be freed from federal prison from a, a Texas conviction, um, and uh, it was now being a, that conviction was being appealed in the court of appeals in New Orleans. I forget which one it is—ninth court of appeals or something. And I had to go to Baton Rouge to talk to Ed Parton's lawyer about talking to the judge about freeing Timothy on his own recognizance. And it was done. It was done. Really? It was done. And how was it so easily done, you know? I, I, no, because that's that's why I'm, I'm so upset about the the coronavirus because there's all these details that I want to come and work on with you. the detective and uh, the the brilliant researcher i mean there's all these details of things that are so mysterious of well, we're going to do it. How this all happened, you know, because here we, uh, I mean, but if you Ed put, Parton. if you, I don't know what you, know about Ed Parton. if you put all these details together, like, uh, you know, like, 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 like a, uh, how do you call these things where, you know, we, we can come up with what was really going on. Ed Parton, can you believe it?
1: Hard to, yeah. Biden was a was a paid government snitch.
0: I know, and he was, and I, I remembered, I remembered him when I read your article, and how. His lawyer was the means for Timothy to finally get. Released on his own recognizance for the Texas.
1: See, see, this is all now starting to annoy me because I'd like to bring you back and continue working.
0: Yeah, and I want to meet that 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 brilliant person next to you.
2: Yes, I'd like to meet you as well.
0: I think we'll have some I can, fun. I can, I can introduce both of you happily. You can do that? Well, I that, can do that. That's can do that. <laughs> that would be yeah. wonderful.
2: I have to leave to take a call right now, but it's been very nice talking to you.
0: It's been wonderful, (laughs) Hamilton. Thank you.
2: Yes. Okay. We
0: will talk again soon. Okay. Okay. All my affection. Very nice to meet your friend as well. Thank you.
3: Yes, thank you. Thank you.